Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Andrew Dismore. Number one, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, before listening my engagements, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in sending our condolences and sympathy to the family and friends of 2nd Lieutenant Jonathan Carlos Racco Cook of the 2nd Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment, who was killed in Iraq on Monday. He was a talented officer, and the whole House should be very proud of him and grateful for the difficult and dangerous job he and others are doing on behalf of this country. Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Last week, the Community Security Trust reported a 31% increase in anti-Semitic incidents, including desecration of cemeteries and synagogues and violence and abuse aimed even at children travelling to and from school, including in my constituency. Will my right honourable friend respond urgently and positively to the recommendations of the all-party inquiry into anti-Semitism to demonstrate his absolute commitment to dealing with this appalling hate crime? Well, first of all, can I say I'm very grateful for the all-party parliamentary group's report um, against anti-Semitism and also for the data that's been compiled by the Community Security Trust, which shows somewhere in the region of some 600 anti-Semitic race-hate incidents. And can I say to him we're absolutely determined to do everything we can to stamp out this form of um, race-hate, not just in respect of Jewish people, but in respect of any members of our community. And what is more, I think the announcement today by my right honourable friend um, of a £5 million package which will help us combat extremism in local communities will do something to help in this regard. But I think a very strong signal from the whole of this House of our abhorrence at any such anti-Semitism or any race-hate crimes will be very welcome indeed. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in sending our condolences to the family of 2nd Lieutenant Jonathan Bracco-Cook, who died on Monday in Basra, and I associate myself entirely with what the Prime Minister said about racism and anti-Semitism. We have also been reminded in the last week that one of the tragedies of war is that terrible mistakes are made and that people die from so-called friendly fire. When mistakes happen, does the Prime Minister agree with me that the Ministry of Defence owes it to the families concerned to provide them with as much information as quickly as possible about the circumstances in which their loved ones were killed? Yes, of course I agree that that is what the Ministry of Defence should do. And, And in respect of this, let me say, first of all, that we deeply regret the distress caused to Lance Corporal of Horse Matty Hull's family by the delay in concluding the inquest into how he died. And I can assure the Right Honourable Gentleman that we will do everything we can to cooperate with the coroner and also make sure that the, the additional distress that's now been caused to the family is minimised. I'm grateful for that answer, but specifically on the case of Matty Hull, the British Board of Inquiry three years ago saw a copy of the video that has now been released The Ministry of Defence told the family at the time that some classified material had been withheld from them, but didn't tell them exactly what it was. The family thought they were told that no tape existed. Is the Prime Minister entirely sure that in this specific case, the Ministry of Defence didn't in any way mislead the family? I am satisfied of this, that although it's true that the CD was not originally provided to the coroner or the family because it was of US origin, 
uh, its existence was provided to the coroner in a list of exhibits supporting the UK Board of Inquiry. And I can say that it was an MOD witness at the inquest who advised the MOD legal team of the existence of the CD. They then, the legal team, sought advice regarding disclosure. And as the US origin of the CD at that time was not realized, they were advised that the coroner could be made aware of his existence. Now, what has happened subsequent to that is, is now well known. And I do deeply regret any additional distress, as I say, that's been caused by the family. But I do believe that the Ministry of Defense did um, act in good faith throughout. And of course, it is important that they make sure that information is given to the families of people concerned. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I don't for one minute underestimate the difficulties and sensitivities of these cases, and the Prime Minister will be aware that the bodies of those who have fallen in Iraq and Afghanistan um, are returned via Bryce Norton in my constituency, and the coroner's cases are largely held in Oxfordshire. It does seem to me there are several issues. There's the distance the families have to travel to the, cor to, to the coroner's court. There's the backlogs and the delays in the inquest. And now there is clearly the need for agreement with our allies so that information, where possible, can be shared with relatives in a timely manner. Will the Prime Minister ensure that the Ministry of Defence and the Department for Constitutional Affairs work together to improve and reform the system and give timely reports back to the House of Commons? Of course, uh, they should do that and, and will do it. And obviously, in, in some of these situations, it's, it's of immense difficulty for the family because not merely have they lost their loved ones but they want to know very properly uh, exactly what has happened and in addition to that of course the whole purpose of having the boards of inquiry that, that the UK forces undertake is to make sure that we learn any of the lessons of the particular incidents concerned and it is obviously again particularly distressing when a death occurs as a result of friendly fire now unfortunately in situations of war these things can happen but I think in those circumstances, it's particularly incumbent on us to make sure that we, we take very carefully and very sensitively the concerns of the, of the families. And we will look again as a result of what has happened over these um, past few weeks to make sure um, that, and I, I hope I can, I can say this with some confidence, that we make sure that in similar such circumstances we're able to deal with it in a better way. Colin Challen. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Let the honourable gentleman speak. In their dreams, Mr. Speaker. Um, in the light of the publication of the fourth report of the IPCC's assessment of climate change last Friday, which shows unequivocally that climate change is likely to be much worse than previously thought, would my right honourable friend agree with me that we have to speed up the implementation of our policies? and indeed revise our targets, including that which may appear in the Climate Change Bill. And in the light of all of that, and what he told the Liaison Committee yesterday, would he agree to meet with myself and representatives of the renewable energy industry to discuss the faster implementation of those policies? Um, well, I, I'd certainly be delighted to do that on behalf of my uh, honourable friend. But can I say, of course, it's extremely important. What we've got coming up in the uh, next few weeks is an energy white paper which will address the issues to do with security of supply but also in particular how we replace the existing generation of nuclear power stations and then there will be the climate change bill which as my honourable friend indicates will make sure that we, we have targets that are sensible 
and which this country can live with, as well as facing up to our responsibilities to give leadership in, the, in this issue. And I'd point out that, of course, it is this country that is one of the few countries in the world that will meet and double our Kyoto targets. And it's also this country leading the way internationally through the G8 plus 5 dialogue and making sure that we're working in harmony with our European partners and others to, to find a global framework that can allow us to put in place an international agreement to reduce CO2 emissions after the Kyoto Protocol expires. Sir Mingus Campbell. May I begin by associating myself with the Prime Minister's expressions of condolence and sympathy and also with his remarks about racism in all its forms. Does the Prime Minister believe that his successor should seek a mandate from the British people in an early general election? I tell you what we should do. <laughs> I think we should continue. I think we should continue to implement the manifesto upon which we are elected for strong public services, a strong economy, and good policies on law and order. That answer ignores one thing. In the last general election, the Prime Minister promised the British people that he would serve a full term. Now we know he's only going to serve two years. Are not the British people, are not the British people entitled to their say about his successor? There was, I think, he wanted me to go, but obviously he wants me to stay. Well, thank him for that. I thank him for that ringing endorsement. And I'm only sorry to have to disappoint him. <laughs> Has the Prime Minister spoken to the Chancellor of Germany about the proposed European wind supergrid? And if he has, what did she say to him? As a matter of fact, yes, I have uh, discussed um, the uh, super wind grid, as it is called, uh, with Chancellor Merkel. Um, and this is, this is, in fact, potentially a very, very exciting project indeed for, for a, a huge uh, wind farm um, out in the North Sea. But it, there are obviously, as my honourable friend would, would recognise, there are a lot of issues to do with cost and feasibility that, that need to be got through. But actually, if we are able to increase significantly the amount of renewable energy that we get from wind sources, it will make obviously a big, big difference to our ability to cut our CO2 emissions. And he's right also in saying that I think it's this type of imaginative project that offers us the best way forward, as well as, of course, the other measures that we will outline in the Energy White Paper. Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister has been having a, a pretty interesting couple of weeks. Um, during this time... During this time, has he noticed the vocal support of his Chancellor? <laughs> I tell them what I've noticed, actually, that whilst we are getting on with the pensions proposals for the future of the country, yeah, whilst, we are, whilst we are producing the energy proposals that guarantee energy security and climate change issues, whilst we are managing a huge investment in our schools as a result of the strong economy the Chancellor has produced, whilst we are investing in the National Health Service, We've been doing all that. What actually has he been doing in the last few years? Um, I, think, I think we can take that as a no. 
I've got to say to the Prime Minister, the Chancellor's not here, so we can have a frank chat about him. <laughs> Doesn't he notice a bit of a pattern? The rebellion over trust schools, the vote on the war in Iraq, now the row about cash for honours. Every time the Prime Minister's in trouble, the Chancellor disappears. Why does he do it? <laughs> Let me tell him... Let me tell them what I have noticed in the past few weeks. Yeah, that at the selfsame time that he has been calling for more spending on prisons, on housing, on schools, on rehab places, on the intelligence service for school leavers, he's also been saying that he's going to cut tax at the same time. Now, this Chancellor has produced the strongest economy, the lowest interest rates, the lowest unemployment, the highest employment in our country's history. That is by taking a sensible view of investment and putting investment before tax cuts. That's his position. That's my position. What's his? If the Chancellor's doing such a great job, bring him on. What are we, what are we waiting for? Isn't the truth in British politics is that the Prime Minister's too isolated to govern and the Chancellor's too indecisive to get rid of him? I'll tell them the truth. The truth is that whilst we've been producing the lowest waiting lists ever in the National Health Service, the best school results ever in the history of our school system, the strongest economy this country's ever seen, whilst we've been facing up to the difficult decisions, he's been ducking them. And that is the difference between a party that has leadership and a party that has none. Uh, David Cleland. Does the, uh, does the Prime Minister agree that, unlike humans uh, who can remain fit for purpose for many decades, uh, mechanical devices do not? And would he ensure the speedy and sympathetic um, uh, pa passage through uh, the government of the refurbishment of the modernisation of the 26-year-old Tynemuir metro system, the business case for which was submitted last week, uh, in order that we, on Tyneside, continue, can continue to pursue government policies for reducing congestion, stimulating local economies, fighting climate change and improving social mobility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I can uh, assure my honourable friend that the proposals um, for the refurbishment of the metro and to make sure the metro continues to do its excellent work on behalf of the people um, in Newcastle, I can, and Gateshead, I can assure him um, that we will look very uh, closely at the proposals that are made. And, of course, this is fortunately within a context where we have been able to double the investment in transport over the past 10 years and have further investments coming on line over the next few years. I can't obviously give him a definitive answer on it as yet, but we will look at it very closely. Martin Horwood. In 2005, skilled IT professional Gary Douglas signed a Home Office pledge to make Britain his permanent home. This is essential and must be maintained, said the Home Office form. Will the Prime Minister look into Mr Douglas' case and explain why, having sold his home and business in New Zealand, he now faces deportation under retrospective changes to the highly skilled migrant worker programme, along with valued professionals from India and elsewhere? When will the government start deporting the right people and stop deporting the wrong ones? You know, I mean, 
for very obvious reasons. I can't give them an answer on the individual case because I don't know anything about it, but I will certainly um, ask the Home Secretary to look into to, to the case. But my usual experience on, on these things is that the facts turn out to be a little more complicated than they're usually presented to me. Sean James. Mr Speaker, will the Prime Minister join me in condemning the letter bomb attack that occurred in the DVLA in my constituency this morning? I am sure that my right honourable friend will want to send his best wishes to the injured employee and her colleagues. I am sure that this contemptible act will receive the full attention of the police and all concerned. Well, first of all, um, can I express my, my sympathy to all those who have been um, caught up in those incidents in my honourable friend's constituency and elsewhere and say how sorry we are that they've been put through what is obviously a very traumatic time for them and I hope that, that they recover from the injuries that they have sustained. Um, I think there's no, nothing really more I can say at the moment to my honourable friend other than that we are looking and investigating very closely uh, the incident concerned and as soon as we have some news that we can properly give her and um, the House then we will do so. Will the Prime Minister, as part of his legacy, get a grip on unfairness of local authority funding? Is he aware that uh, in Solihull residents receive only 42 pence a head uh, from central government for every pound paid in next door Birmingham, despite the fact that Solihull has four of the most deprived wards in the country? Is a lonely pensioner or a sick child less worthy of, their, of, of funding than someone in Labour's former home? Well, uh, first of all, I, I should point out to her that not merely Solihull, but all local authorities have, have received above inflation increases in funding, central government funding over the past few years. And I would also say that, of course, that is then replicated also in schools, uh, in law and order, and in the health service as well. And the, the, the difficulty is we do have to measure um, exactly how much each individual area gets according to an index that measures in particular deprivation and she will be aware of the fact that there is always going to be a limit on the amount of resources and I would say to her that whilst I understand that there will be pockets of real deprivation within her constituency there are also of course immense pockets of deprivation in parts of Birmingham and it's important we therefore have a balanced outcome to the funding formula. Tom Clark. Mr Speaker, does my right honourable friend agree that since the wholesale energy prices uh, have been reduced by a staggering 50% since last April, that the time for energy companies to be offering excuses and to move on to ensure that there are real reductions for long-suffering consumers has surely now arrived. Yeah. Well, I entirely understand uh, what my honourable friend says, and I, I hope that we are now at a turning point because, of course, as he rightly says, um, there's been a, a, a big fall recently in wholesale prices. And I understand that some of the biggest suppliers are planning to announce that they will cut their prices for domestic customers in the very near future. Um, he will also know, of course, that the latest international comparison data show that domestic British customers still have the lowest gas bills in Europe and electricity bills are below the European average. But he's absolutely right in saying, however, that over the past couple of years, these prices have risen substantially. They are putting pressure on people's living standards. And therefore, I hope that as the wholesale prices have now fallen, then companies take that on board and reduce prices to domestic customers. Paul Holmes. This government tells Chesterfield Borough Council Housing Department that they have a surplus of money from their council tenants' rents. 
and so they take away over £3 million a year to spend elsewhere, a surplus that will rise to £5 million as the government insists that council rents go up by more than inflation. At exactly the same time, this government... At exactly the same time, this government tells the Housing Department that they have too little money and must privatise their council houses. Can the Prime Minister explain in what weird parallel universe it's possible to have too much money and too little money at exactly the same time? Again, I'm afraid I'd have to to look at the situation in Chesterfield to know whether that is indeed correct or not. But when... I would, if, if he forgives me, you know, my experience of the Lib Dems is such that I have to look into the facts before I take them. Yeah. But, but I will look into them and get back in touch with them. But I would point out the fact that we have increased the funding available for Chesterfield, as with other councils in the country. But as I said in answer to a point a moment or two ago, people have got to live within their means. Ian Davidson. Is the uh, Prime Minister aware that the Scottish Affairs Committee yesterday cancelled the booking with Hilton Hotels in Dundee? And would he agree with the European Union and I uh, that... (laughs) 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 That uh, American, American laws, for example, on a boycott of Cuba should not be applied to American subsidiaries in Britain, Europe or worldwide. And would he agree to raise this with George Bush when next he meets him? Well, first of all, um, can I congratulate my honourable friend what must have been an an acute emotional struggle between his views on America and his views on Europe. Um, I'm not not sure I can promise him that I will raise this with the President, but I'm certainly happy to look into it, and if I can be of any help, will be. John Randall. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister said at the time of the last general election that he would serve a full term. Who or what made him change his mind? Speaker, I, I went through this at length uh, last year. I have to say to him, however, that the most important thing for this country is that we continue with the policies that in ten years have seen, have seen not just a strong economy, but money flooding into areas like his, which have meant, for example, in his area, that he's got extra numbers of nurses and doctors, that he's had extra numbers of school buildings, that there are thousands of people, oh yeah, because this is what a strong economy has delivered. There are pensioners and families in his area that, thanks to a Labour government, are better off. And what everyone will remember at the next election is what it was like under the Tory government he used to support. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Uh, I wonder if my right honourable friend knows the number of people in Scotland who work for the MOD, who work in the Department of Work and Pensions, who work in the Treasury, and how safe and secure are these jobs in the short, medium and long term? Well, I can assure my uh, honourable friend that the 20,000 jobs that are linked to defence in Scotland um, are safe if we continue with Scotland as part of the United Kingdom. But what would be a disaster for the Scottish defence industry, for people that work in defence services in Scotland, is if Scotland were to be wrenched out of the United Kingdom, where its economy would suffer and where vital industries like defence would then be left without the security of being part of the United Kingdom. Angela Burning. With the government's policy,
policy to close more and more maternity units around the country. He's a father, he knows about these things. What guarantees can he give in my rural constituency to women having to travel further and further that they won't find themselves giving birth in some far-flung motorway services area en route to a hospital? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say to her that I, I, I'm sorry that she and the Conservative Party have taken the view that they are against these changes to maternity services because... Oh, 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 let, me oh, just, let, let the Prime Minister yeah. answer. Let the Prime Minister Let me just oh, oh, point oh, out oh, that it's the Prime Minister that answers, not any other minister. It's Prime Minister's question time. Let me just point out to her that not merely have the numbers of midwives increased over the past few years, but the number of consultants have increased by 40% operating in this area, and the, the numbers of midwives now in training is over 30% up. However, it is the advice we receive from clinicians, from those who actually deliver babies, that it is better that we have a set of specialist services with then maternity midwife units, and that is the best way to make sure that we save lives. And what is absurd is for the Conservative Party that has opposed all the investment in the National Health Service then to oppose reforms that are absolutely vital to save patients' lives. Can I ask a frank question of my right honourable friend? Not that one. Can, 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 can he tell us when he himself came to the conclusion that a fully appointed House of Lords is not acceptable? And can he also tell us if when the voting takes place he will in fact be voting himself in the division lobby for the government's recommendations? Yes, of course, I, I, I will. And, and let me say to my honourable friend that I have always expressed concern about a hybrid house. However, in our manifesto, because we weren't able to resolve this issue in the last Parliament, um, we believed that it was right to try and seek consensus. I asked the Leader of the House to try and find that consensus. He's located it in the proposals that he's put forward. I will back those proposals. And I think that it is important that we try to resolve this issue once and for all. There are going to be different views right across this House, but I think it is sensible, if we can, to find a consensus so that this reform can be completed. The Prime Minister will know that in 2002, Abu Hamza had his assets frozen by the Chancellor, yet the following year was allowed to transfer a flat to his son, who has himself been convicted of terrorist offences. Why is it that five years later, this glaring loophole in our anti-terror defences has still not been closed? I don't agree, actually, that we have a, a loophole in the way that we deal with terrorist finances. And I think the most important thing, and we've shown this in relation to Abu Hamza case, is that we are prepared to take tough action against those people that are, that are inciting racism or extremism in our country. And let me just point out to the Honourable Gentleman that every time we have introduced tougher measures on terrorism in this house, oh yes, the Conservative Party, whilst calling for tough measures in general, has been voting against them in particular. Does my friend believe there is such a thing as the public service ethos? Uh, and if so, how would he define it? I define it as giving the best service to the user of that service. And therefore, if I can say to my honourable friend, for example, in the meeting I had with Foundation Hospitals just a short time ago, 
When they showed how their business partners were able to help improve their procurement in their hospital so that they saved money on procurement and put it to patient care, that seems to be the public service ethos in action. Public service is a set of values. Values remain constant. Times don't. They change. And that's why it's important that as well as we preserve those values of public service, we find new ways of implementing for the new times we live in. So John Hayes. Uh, the Prime Minister will know that my right honourable friend, the Leader of the Opposition, has made a bold and principled stand. A bold and principled stand against uh, multiculturalism. Because as he's argued, because as he's argued, it too often emphasises the things which divide us rather than those which unite us. Will the uh, Prime Minister uh, follow my right of friend's lead by emphasising a better future based on social cohesion, social mobility and social justice and today acknowledge the damage which multiculturalism has done to people in this country of all races, religions and creeds? After the television, I think before the right honourable gentleman made his speech, uh, I'm sorry it obviously didn't come across his desk, I had already made a speech calling upon multiculturalism to be balanced by a duty to integrate. However, let me just tell him something about the issue of multiculturalism. I don't think the problem has ever been with the sense of multiculturalism celebrating diversity in our country. What it shouldn't be is a source of division within our country. And that is why I think it is sensible to say to people they, they, there are different faiths and different races and different cultures and we are happy that we live together. But what is essential also is that there are certain values about tolerance and respect for other people, about belief in democracy and freedom, which are essential British values that unite us all together. And I think... I have to say to him that probably most sensible people in this House on all sides agree with that. Kelly Mountford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will my right honourable friend support the campaign launched by Women's Aid in number 11 Downing Street last week, which is, which is to, act, to act against domestic violence? This campaign uses images of very famous women made up to, to look as if they've been abused by domestic violence. This is to make it clear that anyone can be abused, but everyone should join Absolutely. in acting Absolutely. against domestic violence, yeah. because we can all be witnesses, we can all take action, and we all should. This is a crime that we should all be acting against and act no, 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 yeah. First of all, I'm very happy to support that, that campaign. Um, and, of course, we, we have made a substantial investment, as my honourable friend knows, uh, to tackle domestic violence over the past few years. And it's interesting, just to point out, since we often uh, have, have bad news about aspects of the Home Office, but convictions at courts have gone up from 8% to 32% since this programme was in place. And the number of victims reporting ongoing violence was down from over 30% to 10%. We've now got 25 specialist domestic violence courts, and we're going to expand that to over 60 by April of this year. And I think that indicates that in this particular area, that for too long was treated uh, as if it was peripheral to um, the concerns of the Home Office and Law and Order, is now right at the centre of our concerns. Yeah. 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 